took a little but very important side trip going uh, for the past four weeks away from the book of Acts. So I want to uh, make sure we jump back and uh, remember where we are. We're, we're during the sort of trial of Stephen. If you remember, Stephen was one of the very respected um, of, the, of the early Christians, so much so that when, when, they, when they kind of decided who they would trust and who they would you know, ask to do this important job, and they chose seven men, one of them was Stephen. And we read Stephen being described often as having like the face of an angel and, and, and that there was something about his spirit that they knew it wasn't really his spirit. It was the spirit of God upon him. But we know that because of his ministry, he had um, come to this conflict with some of the, some of the, the Jewish uh, people, that, uh, Jewish leaders that lived in Jerusalem at the time. And he is brought before the Sanhedrin and he's accused of these, of these different things about speaking against the temple and speaking against um, the scriptures. And it's also mentioned specifically that he's speaking about Jesus. And this is the same group, by the way, that just a few months earlier had, had, had Jesus before them. And there's a lot of differences between Stephen's trial and Jesus' trial, but make no mistake, this is many of the same people. And what we find here in this, this story, we find really the, the four major points of, of becoming his church. That's, that's the series title, Becoming His Church. And we've seen through, through the book of... Um, through the book of Acts so far, there's this, this important thing of, of witness. And that, that that's gonna be a constant theme of, of testifying about who Jesus is in every situation, in, in good and bad, in the routine and the exceptional. No matter what's happening, they are proclaiming the gospel. We also see this idea of the spirit and the spirit not just being manifest in in um, the kind of supernatural ways of healing. In fact, much more emphasis is on the spirit being manifest in their obedience to God's word and their, and their community of faith that's being developed here. And then in the recent chapters, right before we took a break, we, we started to see persecution coming upon the church. And so here with the with Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin about to, to give his response, we see the element of the spirit has already been introduced. That what he's about to do is because of the spirit in his life. What, if we just looked at the story and we missed that part, we might think like, what a brave man Stephen is. What a faithful man Stephen is. What a you know, eloquent, powerful speaker Stephen is. All true to a certain extent. But Luke makes it really clear that what he's doing is because 
of the Holy Spirit in his life. We're gonna see that. He's being persecuted. We're gonna see that. And we're gonna see him testify. Now I'm about to do something that, you know, some people uh, might have trouble with, and that is I'm gonna read a pretty long passage of scripture, but you need to kinda, kinda hang with me here. Um, we did this on, on Good Friday where we, pretty much all we did on good, our Good Friday service was read scripture, we didn't really have a sermon. And if it helps you to kinda close your eyes and visualize what's happening, great. If it helps you to read the words, great. But try to actively listen. Understand what's going on. Here's Stephen standing what was probably in a room uh, or like an area, courtyard area or building where there's like a semicircle around him. And, and there's either benches or you know, people are standing. And the Sanhedrin usually would have about 70, 70 men. So there's 70 who are there. There very well could have been the people who brought him in, accusing him of these things. And there's the, the high priest who would have presided over the Sanhedrin. And now he's told Stephen, what do you say to these charges? So again, as the scripture goes, don't get lost in the words. Try to actively have in your mind what Stephen is doing, what Stephen is saying. In his Acts chapter seven, verses two through 51 say this, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, 
Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Jesus. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we, don't, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship 
the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove, them, that drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now you might be looking at that going, uh, what was the question again? You know? And the problem is, is that we are thoroughly Western and modern. And by being thoroughly Western modern, it's really difficult for us to, to read the Bible sometimes. Because when we're reading the Bible and we see a story, we think the story is just there the same way we use a story. We use a story just like as an illustration. You know, for example, you know, my dog did this today. That's, that's how we use stories. We may use stories as, as some kind of evidence, like here's a, here's a, here's a, piece of evidence. This is an example of, you know, what I'm saying is true. So we don't use stories the same way they did back then. In the East, the story is actually communicating something more than a story. And the more familiar you are with the story and the sources that Stephen's drawing from, the more you know why he's telling these stories and why he's telling them this way. And we know the evidence that, that the people listening knew exactly what he was saying. He kind of makes the point, one of the points near the end, but you gotta imagine that as he's telling these stories, they're beginning to steam because they know what he's saying. And one of the things that, that Stephen is doing in these stories is he's revealing the hearts of these people who are accusing him, of these religious leaders. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that a lot of us like to have our hearts revealed 
in front of a lot of people, especially when we're trying to hide what's in there. And that's what he's doing. You can see it from the very beginning when he says brothers and fathers. I think in some sense that was being respectful. But if you read throughout the rest, most of the time when he mentions fathers or patriarchs, he's talking about them rejecting God's messenger. He's, it, it, again, he doesn't just come out at, you know, at the very start and say, you rejected Jesus. He, he presents these stories and he shows how in those stories, what the religious leaders, especially the ones who are more like the Pharisees, when they saw those stories or when they read those stories, they would do what we do when we see stories. When we see stories, you know, we immediately think like, you know, who is the hero? Who's, who's the villain? And, you know, we, we, we want to be on the side of the hero, especially if we view ourselves as being good. And so when they had heard these stories before, they might have thought they're, you know, they're representing Moses. They might have thought they're representing Joseph. They might have thought they were, you know, on the side of God and what's good. And Stephen is saying, no, you're the fathers. You're the patriarchs. And that's kind of one of the favorite things that a lot of people online like to do. You know, you, you can go online and just about any movie, any book, you can, you know, which character are you? Which Disney princess are you? Which villain are you? And you can take a little, little answer five questions, you know, and it'll, it'll tell you. And of course, sometimes we're really disappointed in those things because we might have thought we should be, you know, Cinderella and we're not, we're Ursula, you know, and it's terrible. Those of you who don't know Disney references, sorry. You know, we, those of you who are, you know, Harry Potter fans, you know, you know what house you want to be in and you find out you're not. You're in the one that's hardly ever mentioned, you know, that nobody knows about. These guys, they, they, they have always thought this is who they are. But know that the Sanhedrin is made up of more than just the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin also has, also has the, 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 the Sadducees and, and the high priest. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but the Sadducees and the high priest, they're the ones, they do not want anything to change. They're in power. Oh, the Romans are over them, but the Romans keep them in power. They don't want anything to change. The Pharisees, they would love to see change. They would, they're looking for a Messiah. They are in some, at certain points in the Gospels, are hoping Jesus is the guy. But not the Sadducees and the high priest. They have this veneer of, you know, we care about God and we have the temple and we do all of this. But in reality, that's, that's, just, to keep the, that's just to keep the people appeased. 
because a lot of them, it's my belief that a lot of those who were both in the high priests and, and, and the Sadducees, they didn't believe in God at all. And if they did believe in God, they certainly didn't believe in a God who intervened in this world. And Stephen is right there telling these stories, revealing who they are. And what does you know, what, do the Sanhedrin, what does the Sanhedrin do? They, they do what most of us would do when someone is revealing who we are and we don't want that to be revealed. We want them to just shut up. We want to stop them. Stephen was exposing the leaders. And again, if you come on Wednesday nights, we unpack this much, much more. But let me just go through the points. Stephen is exposing the leaders for their, for their false beliefs. And one of their false beliefs is that they had reduced their belief in God, if they still believed in God, to just the temple. To the point that they had almost come to the point, and some of them had probably crossed this line, that by reducing God to the temple, they made an idol out of the temple. Some of them had reduced God just to Israel. And so their God became a national God. Even though their scripture said God created the whole world, he didn't just create Israel. He didn't just create the ancient Near East, the Fertile Crescent. In fact, he didn't just create the world, he created everything that's ever been created. And yet they wanted to reduce this God to just their own personal God, their own national God. By the way, maybe I'll preach this sermon later, but we, we do the same thing, far worse. We do the same thing. We reduce God to be America's God. Or we reduce God to be our personal God that we have the right to interpret and to characterize however we wish. No one is allowed to question our interpretation of who God is. Be careful. Even if I agree with you, even if I think you're 98% right, be careful. Anytime you think you have got God, you've got that understanding of a God who is infinite, you are creating an idol. And you've got to be careful. The second thing that he's pointing out to them is not just the reduction of God to the temple and, and the uh, elevation of the temple to almost a point of idolatry, is the rejection of the Messiah. And again, he's gone through these different stories about how Joseph and Moses were rejected. And he's revealing it. And in the stories, he's, especially the story on Moses, which takes most of the, most of the space, he, in the stories, he gives the motivation that some of those people had. 
Some of the people, you know, 1,500 years earlier, before Jesus, their motivation was, we, we look, we're out here, we followed Moses, but you know what? Egypt wasn't so bad. We just want things to stay the way they were. Again, similar to some of these religious leaders that were just like, look, Rome, Rome's not so bad, especially because I got a great job and I got a nice house and I have more than enough for myself and my family. Why would we mess it up? I think there's other points that, that Stephen's not necessarily making here, but, but he could have. And I think one of them is something that I had read, and I kind of just summarized this down to here, that what he's ultimately revealing to them is, you have empty hearts. And if you have empty hearts, you have empty worship. You have empty hearts. You don't have hearts that, that have this, this real great desire and love for God because if you did, you would really understand the law as Jesus said, which is it's not just loving God, it's not just showing how much you honor God and worship God, but it translates to also how much we love each other and how we take care of each other. And you're not doing that. You've got yours and you don't care that most of the people of, uh, in, at the time, the Jewish people, are, are impoverished, are struggling, are being you know, picked on by the Romans. You don't care. Empty hearts, empty worship. And I've talked a little bit about this before, and I don't want to go off too much on a side trip, but you know, in every, um, most of my life, I've heard about the worship wars, about how people want to argue over what kind of music, what style of music, what songs, et cetera, et cetera. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what songs you sing if you come in here with empty hearts. If you come in here with empty hearts, then you will only notice whether you like a song or not. But if you come in here with full hearts, we don't even have to sing and you will worship. If all of us come here together with hearts that are full, you don't even, we don't even have to have music. We'll worship. It'll be awesome. And then when we add music, it'll be awesomer. Empty hearts, empty worship. They get so upset because he's revealing who they are. He's hitting home. They feel threatened. There's so many other examples here that are, that are, that are in just the details of, of what Stephen's saying. And, and again, we unpack this more on Wednesday night. 
You know, especially when he's talking about Moses and he calls him the redeemer. When he talks about the congregation and he uses the same word that's going to be used for the church. When he's constantly emphasizing that God is working and he's not working in the promised land. He's working in all these other places. Even when he says, Moses, it's going to brought you living words, living oracles. But let's look at the, the main points here. The main points is they kind of challenge us today. And the first thing that we, that we see here is I think one of the most important questions. It's an important question about Acts. It's an important question about the Bible and it's an important question about all of existence. And the question is this, whose story is it? Whose story is it? The book of Acts, whose story is it? The Bible, whose story is it? All of creation, all of existence, whose story is it? It's God's story. It's God's story. It's not my story, it's not your story, it's not our story, it's God's story. And as soon as we forget that, we open ourselves up to all kind of wrong beliefs. As soon as we think my life is my story, and we do not understand that your life is part of God's story, as soon as we lose that context, we may turn out all right, things may work out in the end, but really, there's, there's nothing that's going to hold us. It's not your story. It's not my story. It's not Israel's story. It's not America's story. It's God's story. And we all know that at some point in times we're guilty of this. We all know at times when we have to make crucial decisions or when we're having to make major life choices, we know how sometimes, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, we, we, we just wanna make it about my story. We just wanna make it about how does this affect me, my life, my family. And we don't take a step back and say, how is this part of God's story? And we do it in different ways. Sometimes we just ignore God totally. You know, we go out, make, you know, major purchases, house, you know, cars, run up credit card bills. And then finally we, because, you know, we're just living our lives, and finally, we decide to, when we can't pay these, now we start praying. Now we want to get close to God. And God was like, you know, I was there all the time. When you wanted to buy that house, were you, were you thinking about my story? Were you thinking about God's story? Or were you just thinking about your story and your life? When you decided you needed that new car, that new computer, whatever, what, what, what story were you thinking about? 
And there's a reason we don't want to ask the question, because we're afraid the answer might be, no, Matt, you know, all-electric Ford F-150 that can turn like a tank, that, that's really not part, that's not really part of my story and what the role I want you to play in your life. By the way, that's an incredible Christmas birthday gift hint to anybody out there who's got that kind of cash. But we don't want to ask the story. Or sometimes we do this, and I used, when I used to work more with high school students, you know, especially those who are kind of college-bound, I would, I would ask the question, especially if they're Christians and they're in church or a Christian school, I would say like, you know, okay, now that when you went through the, the college search process, how many of you invited God into the process at the very beginning? Or how many of you just did the typical thing? What's my dream school? What's the school I know I can get in, et cetera? And then you narrowed it down to two or three schools that you got accepted in, and then you decided, okay, God, can you help me now? We, we do it in different ways. We either narrow down the choices to what's acceptable to us, or we just ignore God completely. It's a problem. It's how Christianity, so much so, especially in, 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 in the West, especially in modern times, becomes so individualized. Where even our, our involvement in church, it's so individualized. It's really about me and my relationship to Jesus. And then, you know, there's, there's the church, which would be okay. You know, it's a great... It's a great added feature, but it's not really essential. Pops up in so many ways in our lives. But Stephen is reminding them, you've made this your story. You've made this Israel story. You've made this the Sanhedrin story, the Sadducee story, or the Pharisee story. You've forgotten that this is God's story because God's story is bigger than it all. The mission from God is global and it's eternal. The second thing that we see here, especially when we look at how they had begun to treat the temple, is that we have to remember that our relationship is with God and not his stuff. It's something we, just like it's not your story, it's God's story. Making sure our relationship is with God and not his stuff is a constant temptation that, that Christians have faced, anyone who tr tries to follow God faces. For, for the first century Jewish leaders, they wanted a relationship with the temple Perhaps the Pharisees were a little bit better. They wanted a relationship with God's law. But relationship with God? Hmm. Stephen, you know, when he's talking about the temple, he quotes from one of the prophets. And I don't want to criticize Stephen because he's awesome. But if I could have given him a little bit of advice, I said, why don't you, 
why don't you quote from Solomon? Solomon, who, who was the one who built the first temple. Solomon, as that beautiful temple, which some had said was more beautiful than the, the next incarnations of it. That beautiful temple, when Solomon was standing there and he prayed in front of all the people, he said this, the highest heavens cannot contain you. What makes us think we can build you a house? He built the house because he believed God wanted him to build this temple. But Solomon recognized who God is. They're not trying to make a box for God to live in. With us, you know, we're, it's not the temple. But maybe we're similar to the Pharisees. We would rather relate to God's law. Or we would rather, you know, we don't like the word law, so maybe we'd rather uh, relate to God and really relate to moralism, doing good. But we don't really want to relate to God. Perhaps we only want to relate to God's promises, the things that he will do for us but we don't really want to relate to God. Perhaps we just want to relate to, to like the programs in the church, Sunday morning, checking in on a Bible study or a growth group once in a while, but we don't want to relate to God. Stephen makes it clear what this kind of thinking is. He, he, he makes a point of talking about when, when, when the, the Jewish leaders, the Israelite leaders, I'm sorry, when they're in the wilderness and, and they're rejecting Moses and Moses is going to come down after having spent time with God on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, he's going to come down with the law. They're like, why don't we just make an idol? Stephen is comparing what the people in his day are doing to idolatry. Anytime, anytime we would rather relate to God's law would rather relate to a place, a blessing, a promise, any of it. If we'd rather do that than have a relationship with God, it's idolatry. And you might go, well, but at least I'm an idolatry to something good, right? Well, one of Stephen's points is as soon as you open the door of idolatry, all kind of other things are there to idolize. The only one who's going to call you out of that is God. And you're trying not to relate to him. 
In fact, if you look at the, the scripture that Stephen quotes, he, he talks about, you know, you went from this, you know, this worship of this calf, and, and then he talks about, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon. In verse 42, it says, God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. They began to, you know, do some kind of astrology. Opens the door. That's why our relationship needs to be with God. It doesn't mean all this stuff is bad. It's not bad. It's all good. You should... You should want to read God's word. You should want to know what he says. You should want to obey, to obey it. But you should be doing that as an expression of your relationship to God, not as a substitute for your relationship with God. We should want to worship. We should, we should want to know his blessings and his promises but we need to understand that these are all part of our relationship with God. And then the last point is simply this. We must know God so that we recognize his voice. Throughout Israel's history, there's people who knew God and they recognized when God sent a messenger, when God sent a message but there are also people who constantly rejected him, either because they recognized this was God's message and they didn't want to hear it, or they didn't understand. They were either sincerely ignorant and thinking that they were on God's side, or they were very aware hypocrites, knowing that they weren't, but not willing to admit it. And now God has sent his son And the same thing happens. People reject. It's one of those, it's one of those things that you know, is true in so many areas. The hardest people to help are those who don't want help or those who don't think they need it. And Jesus comes to, to a world where there's some people who desperately want and need help, but there's a whole lot of others who are in the other camp. And yet Jesus came anyways. We see this example of Stephen that lets us know he recognized God's voice. He understood who Jesus was and what Jesus' message was. And he believed it so much. He was willing to do something that I'm not sure a lot of people would be willing to do, even Christians. He knows he's walking into a dangerous place. He knows that the outcome could be that he could very well just, at, at minimum, be, be beaten, like Peter and John and some of the other disciples had before. But he goes anyways. He confronts them with truth. He confronts them with love no matter what the cost. His, 
his story is this reminder that, that we all have sin. We all are going to continue to sin. That we can practice what Stephen does in, in different ways. And one of those is just within the church. Being able to confront one another in love. But the other side is important too. Being willing to be confronted in love. Both of those things. If we're getting sidetracked, if we've made this about my story and not God's story, if we've made this about I want to relate to God's stuff and not my stuff, if, if we're not recognizing God's word and God's message in our lives, we need each other to help us. We need each other in love to confront us. We need to be willing to do it and we, we need to be willing to receive it. And when it's truly done in love and it's received in love, all of these become opportunities to know, to learn, to grow closer. Something that just doesn't happen enough in the church. People always want to talk about church discipline. Why don't churches do church discipline more? Well, you know, they should. But you know what should be happening at the interpersonal level? We should just be helping each other. So these things never rise to the level of church discipline. But we always have our reasons. You know, it's, you know, what, what will they think of me? You know, I, you know, I could lose a friend. Um, you know, God wants us all to stay together, so the best way to stay together is just to lie to each other all the time. Sound, makes sense. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. No, it's not. And yet, it's what our main code is so many times. When our focus is on my story or your story, then we will never confront one another in love. When our focus is on his story, it's different. When we focus on ourselves, we make our world the world and our problems so big and God so small. But when we understand we are part of God's story, when we see God in his rightful place, and we have a deep desire and commitment to do our part in his story, everything changes. And we've hit this point so many times before. But in short, what is our part? We're called to speak truth in love, in the church, and in the world.